I go out. Philippians 4, verses 2 through 7. The word of the Lord. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Sintichi to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God. Good morning. So, thanks for saying my name, whoever did that. <laughs> it's great to see all of you here this morning. Uh, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Philippians, and we are closing in on the end. We are in Philippians 4, and we have, after this Sunday, three, wait, sorry, no, two more weeks in Philippians. Uh, and next week also, we will be beginning our Advent season. We're going to have two of our Advent sermon from Philippians and then two from different passages. And so I hope you are looking forward to celebrating Advent together as a church. This passage is uh, quite fascinating and at the same time perplexing in that you see Paul commanding to the Philippians emotions. Rejoice, don't be anxious. Uh, as somebody who struggles a lot with emotions, I find it quite fascinating but also confusing to be commanded to feel a certain thing. But let me pray and then we'll dive into this message. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it can be a comfort in times of uncertainty and trial. We thank you that it can challenge us when our eyes are blind to our own shortcomings. Please speak to us now, we pray, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. Atheist and philosopher Burton Russell, in his famous speech and article, Why I Am Not a Christian, stated, religion is based primarily and mainly upon fear. It is partly the terror of the unknown and partly the wish to feel that you have a kind of elder brother who will stand by you in all your troubles and disputes. Fear is the basis of the whole thing, Russell argues. Fear of the mysterious, fear of defeat, fear of death, fear is the parent of cruelty, he goes on. And therefore, it is no wonder if cruelty and religion have gone hand in hand. It is because fear is the basis of those two things. At that time, in the early 20th century, Burton Russell and many atheists argued that if we liberate people from religion, from belief in God, then we will liberate them from fear and anxiety. They argued that if that was done, then fear and anxiety would disappear. However, the hundred years since Russell has shown has proven the opposite to be true. Another atheist, a secular sociologist named Frank Ferretti, a, a current academic, 
He is one of the leading academics who studies fear and anxiety. And Freddie has identified how in modern cultures, fear and anxiety is actually more prevalent today than even 30 to 40 years ago. He claims that we live in a culture of fear. In fact, people use fear and anxiety to an alarming degree. He contends that in areas such as advertising, politics, education, medicine, and so much more, fear is used as a motivator, a promoter of morality. You've all heard things like this, buy and consume this vitamin or this medication and you will be healthy or, or, sorry, buy this vitamin, consume this medication, or you'll be unhealthy and die an untimely death. Vote for this candidate, or the candidate of the other party will destroy America. Educate your children in this way, or their future will be bleak and hopeless. Go to the best Ivy League school and incur a mountain of debt. They don't tell you that. Go to the best Ivy League school, or you won't have a shot at a good career and future. I could go on and on. Examples abound of how fear and anxiety is used to promote certain things. Just look at any, any news website, and you'll see headlines that are couched in language of fear and anxiety. Michael Reeves, in a recent book, Rejoice and Tremble, says, when your culture is hedonistic, your religion therapeutic, and your goal of feeling of personal well-being and security Fear will be an ever-present headache. Fear will be an ever-present headache. We live in a world that decisively lacks peace. We are driven by fears, anxieties, uncertainty, and even in our modern period, despite an abundance of things and wealth and overwhelming freedoms and opportunities, so many of us are consumed by fear and anxiety. We grow anxious and afraid because of so many things. Now, is anxiety a sin? After all, here in verse 6, Paul commands the Philippians, do not be anxious. So shouldn't we simply conclude that anxiety is a sin? After all, we're commanded not to have anxiety, to not be anxious. I would not go that far to say that all anxiety is sin. Rather, I would explain, as a great many other people do, that anxiety might not in and of itself be sinful, but our response to anxious circumstances definitely can be sinful. Let me unpack that. In an article that an author, Joe Carter, writes, wrote, he said that fear and anxiety can fall into four categories. First, it can be a God-given emotional response for our benefit. Fear and anxiety can be an emotional response to a dangerous situation. Not many of you will encounter this, but if a, a lion were to suddenly come in here, you would rightfully feel fearful, and you should, and that is not sin. <laughs> this is not normally considered sin, an emotional response given by God to a situation and it can be good. Second, a disordered physiological response that is not sinful. This is what many describe as clinical anxiety. Sometimes it's just something, uh, it's a medical condition requiring care, counseling, medication at times. This is also not normally considered sin. Third, a natural consequence of sin. For example, someone gambles their money away in a game or on the stock market, and then they become anxious about how they're going to pay their bills. This feeling of anxiety is a result of sin. They're feeling anxious because they did a sinful thing. Fourth, anxiety can be a sinful response to God's providential care. We can be anxious despite the promises of God that he will providentially care for his people. Anxiety, despite God's promises to provide and care for us, is sinful doubt. 
of who God is and of his promises. So we see that though anxiety may be sinful and it may cause us to sin, it is not in and of itself necessarily sin. So if you are sitting here this morning feeling anxious and struggling with anxiety, don't hear me saying that you are necessarily sinning and disobedient to God. I myself have struggled with anxiety in my life at different times. When we experience anxiety, there are a number of ways that we can respond. First, we can have the autonomous response. We can rely on ourselves. We don't need anyone or anything. We're going to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, and we're going to tackle this anxiety, this situation that's causing us fear. We're going to be in control, the autonomous response. We will, second, avoid. We will rely on the things of the world, a full bank account, a good job, other people. Sometimes we self-medicate to avoid our anxieties. I'm sure some of you saw the news and were greatly saddened by the alarming development in our country over the past two years. In the height of the pandemic, from May 2020 to April 2021, 100,000 people died due to opioid drug overdose. 100,000 people in that one-year period. The same period the year before, compared to it, we saw almost 30% increase in opioid deaths. People are self-medicating to an alarming degree. They're trying to find security, comfort, escape, avoid. A third way we respond to anxiety is to attack. We lash out at the world. We lash out at other people. We lash out at God when things cause us anxiety and fear. In this passage, we see two individuals, Euodia and Syntyche, attack one another and refuse to agree. We don't know exactly where their disagreement and fighting came from. But we can look at our own lives and know that sometimes our fighting is the result of fear and anxiety. Fourth, another way we sometimes respond to anxiety is to fixate. We obsess and fixate on our anxieties, which causes them to multiply and grow in alarming ways that are sometimes divorced from reality. All four of these responses are wrong. We should not try to be autonomous. We should not avoid our anxieties. We should not attack in response to them, and we should not fixate on them. At the end of the day, all of these responses to anxiety and fear will only leave us feeling cold, isolated, hopeless. There's this wonderful book called The Dynamics of Spiritual Life by Richard Lovelace, and it's got so many great quotes, but one of them, he says, we start each day with our personal security resting not on the accepting love of God, and the sacrifice of Christ, but rather on our present feelings or our recent achievements in the Christian life. Since these things will not quiet the human conscience, we are inevitably moved either to discouragement and apathy or to self-righteousness, which falsifies the record to to achieve a sense of peace and security. Lovelace is saying that in the face of this broken, anxiety-producing world, we often seek security and peace in our own feelings, our own achievements, in other people, other things. But all of those are like dumping cold, ice-cold water on an already cold body. They can't warm us. They can't provide the refuge and security we need. Lovelace goes on to say, but the faith that is able to warm itself at the fire of God's love instead of having to steal love and acceptance from other sources, is the root of peace. Hear that again. The faith that is able to warm itself at the fire of God's love is the root of peace. 
And that's what we see in our passage today. Here in Philippians 4, 5, Paul lets us know the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. He reminds his listeners and us that Jesus the Savior has come and will come again. He is at hand. He is the king sitting on the throne. Earlier in chapter 3, verse 20 to 21, Paul explained that our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Jesus the King has died and saved us. Sin has been put away. He will transform us. He is at hand. He is the King on the throne. He can subject all things under his feet. He as at hand, the Lord who has saved us and loved us. That is what we need to go to, to warm ourselves in the cold, isolating fears and anxieties of this world. This Jesus who has saved us and will completely transform us so that sin is no more, this Jesus is at hand. This Lord is present intimately in each one of our lives. We can rest secure in him. We do not have a far off and distant God. Our God does not dwell on Mount Olympus like the malicious gods of the Greek mythology who meddles in our lives for their own good, nor is he a disinterested watchmaker who set the world in motion and then disappeared, leaving everything to just go on and on to its inevitable end. That is not who our God is. No, the Lord is at hand. He is present in your life right now and every day of your life. This is good news. This should cause us to not be anxious or afraid, but rather, as our passage says, to rejoice. The passage goes on and tells us that we are to rejoice in the Lord. Paul says it two times. He commands it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoicing and prayer are commanded here, and both are possible because the Lord is at hand, the one who has saved us. So after that very lengthy introduction, let's look at the idea we're going to unpack a little bit for the remainder of our time. The Lord is at hand, so we should peacefully rejoice. The Lord is at hand, so we should peacefully rejoice. And we're going to unpack this peaceful rejoicing in two areas where we often experience anxiety, fear, and a lack of peace and joy. We're going to look at peaceful rejoicing in relationships and peaceful rejoicing in our reliance on the Lord. First, one way we peacefully rejoice in the Lord is shown in our relationships. First, we see in verses 22 to 3 that at Philippi there were broken relationships that were tearing apart the church. Many think that the repeated call to unity throughout the book of Philippians had this disagreement between Euodia and Syntyche, two women, at its root as the background. After all, the call to the Philippian church back in chapter 2 to have the same mind is the same words here in our passage where Paul calls Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. These are the exact same words, repeated, but for whatever reason, translated differently in English. We're not told exactly why Euodia and Syntyche were fighting, but it was important enough to have, it was important enough and having a big enough impact on the church for Paul to call them out individually in this letter. Now, most, many people at that time could not read, and so this letter would have been read before the entire Philippian church. 
So just put yourself in UOD and Syntyche's shoes. It's as if you're sitting here, and I'm up here, and I'm saying, Bob, Joe, agree in the Lord, please. And hey, Sam, help them, because they can't seem to agree for whatever reason. Can you just imagine that? That feeling? Oh, that's what's going on here. We don't know the nature of their conflict, but the repeated references in Philippians to rivalry, conceit, ambition, and a contrasting emphasis on humility imply that they may have been engaged in a power struggle over the church, its direction, its vision. These women were committed to the gospel, the church. Paul calls them fellow laborers. He says their names are written in the book of life. In a lot of areas, these women were doing things great. They knew the Lord but they had this disagreement that was tearing apart the church. So Paul pleads with them and even calls on another individual to help them in reconciliation and unity. The call to work for unity and peacemaking is a call for every individual in the church. All of us are to work together for unity and peace. What does agree in the Lord mean? It means to be of the same mind in the Lord. It's defined as thinking the same thing, having the same attitude, having the same opinion sometimes, and being intent primarily on the same goal. This is the same call that Paul earlier gave the entire Philippian church. They are to have the same goal of gospel partnership, gospel fulfillment in theirs and other people's lives. In verse 5, Paul commands the Philippians to be known by their reasonableness to everyone, and that is how our relationships are to be characterized. This word reasonable here could also be understood as gentle, and according to a a biblical dictionary definition, it, it means not insisting on every right of letter of the law and custom not insisting on every right, yielding, gentle, kind, courteous, tolerant is what this word means and how we are supposed to act in our relationships with one another. And earlier passages in Philippians certainly support this understanding where again and again the Philippians are called to have the mind of Christ where he was willing to sacrifice himself for others and had an extreme love and gentleness. We see that one of the ways that we are to peacefully rejoice is in our relationships as Christians. We are to love one another in gentleness. We are to put aside our own interests and to seek unity and follow the common goal of gospel partnership, a witness of the gospel to the world, and a mutual call to discipleship that we are to pursue together. In the book Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer, he uses uses this great illustration. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, looking to Christ, or in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. What is A.D.B. Tozer saying? He's saying that we need to be so focused on Jesus and the gospel that that will overflow into unity here at EP. I would expand his illustration, though, and say that while 100 pianos tuned to the same pitch all sound very similar, a better illustration would be the body of Christ as an orchestra. 
Because you see, the body of Christ is diverse in personality, background, ethnicity, culture, language, and so many other ways. We are more like an orchestra than 100 pianos, an orchestra of variety of instruments. Yet orchestras almost always also tune to the same note. If you've ever been to a symphony, you will traditionally hear an oboe play an A note, and then all of the rest of the orchestra tune to that A note, but they don't all sound identical because they are all different instruments and provide a rich variety of sounds, and that's why it's so beautiful. We likewise in our unity in Christ are all tuned to Christ, but are different, diverse. Our differences should not cause us anxiety or animosity or fear, but rather they should be celebrated. We are unified in our allegiance and delight in Christ our Savior. If we don't have this perspective, then relationships will be filled with what Paul has described earlier in Philippians, selfishness, ambition, conceit, disagreements, and many worse attitudes driven by anxiety, fear, and a desire to control. We are called, commanded even here, to be gentle to all, reasonable to all, all. That word is small but important, all. Not to those who love us, not to those who have the same opinion and point of view as us, not to those who agree with everything I think, say, or do. We are to be gentle to all, reasonable to all. In a world growing hostile to Christians, we need to be known by our gentleness more and more. When anxiety and fear consumes us, it's difficult, if not impossible at times, to be gentle and demonstrate a Christ-like mind and manner. So often when anxiety and fears consume us, we lash out and it negatively impacts our relationships. If we are anxious about someone's well-being, a child, a spouse, a friend, we can become controlling instead of trusting the God-given agency that God has given that individual. If we're afraid of the world, the world's point of view, the world's sin, if we're afraid of the world influencing the church, then we can become dangerously dogmatic over small differences of opinion in our attempts to protect the church. If we're anxious about another's influence, we become manipulative, controlling, and fight them over every small issue because we're afraid of where they are going, even though we might not actually know. This fear and anxiety can cause us to be divided and not be united. Our goal is not uniformity, but rather unity. Uniformity is everyone in the church, every Christian, being identical down to every detail. And that's not our goal. Instead, our goal is unity, everyone being united in salvation and participation in the gospel mission that God himself is working on. There are certain central, essential issues that we must not have disagreement upon. The Trinity, Jesus being both God and man, Christ's substitutionary, sacrificial, atoning death and resurrection, we're not going to disagree on these. We need unity on these. We need uniformity on these and other issues. But on non-essential issues, we can disagree and still be unified. And in fact, our disagreements might be beneficial for us. Because as Drew wonderfully prayed earlier, iron sharpens iron and our disagreements causes us potentially to come to a more clear and beneficial understanding. Paul's aim here in talking about relational unity is to highlight how disagreements and fights that don't concern salvation can tear apart the church 
Paul was not shy in calling out disagreements over salvation. Just read the book of Galatians and you'll see that he was willing to divide over issues concerning salvation. A second way we peacefully rejoice in the Lord is shown in our humble, dependent reliance upon him alone in all our needs, troubles, and suffering. And so in verse 6, Paul commands the Philippians, do not be anxious about anything. This command is in the present tense. And so we see that he was commanding them to stop the habitual practice of anxiously worrying about every detail of their life. We've already unpacked this in the introduction, but there is a difference between being genuinely concerned about something that you should be and overly concerned about something to an obsessive degree that leads to a lack of trust in God. The biblical texts rarely just issue a negative, but they always give you the positive difference of how you're supposed to live in light of the gospel. And we see that here. And so verse 6 continues, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Do not be anxious. Instead of being anxious, we are called to humbly show our reliance on God by praying. Paul emphasizes both a total dependence on God and the need to fully, vulnerably disclose their innermost needs and thoughts. And so he uses four different words to emphasize the same basic idea. He says prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, requests. Okay, we get it, Paul. We're supposed to talk to God. We're supposed to talk to God about everything. Our joys, our difficulties, our our thanksgiving, our needs. Talk to God. Walter Hansen commenting on this passage says, only by praying with thanksgiving in every situation is it possible to stop being anxious about anything? The continuous positive focus of praying with thanksgiving to God in everything breaks and replaces the habit of worry. If you're like me, then you struggle with worry. If you're like me, then you struggle with anxiety about the many things in your life. We need to break that habit of anxiety and worry by praying about everything from the smallest thing to the largest thing, from the things that cause us anxiety to the things that we don't even think to worry about. Pray. In verse 7, we see the result. As we bring our anxieties and fears and needs to the Lord in rejoicing reliance, then we will see God's peace overflow into our lives, protecting our hearts and minds. You see the security that God wants us to have. As we pray, peace guards our hearts, and minds. This humble, dependent reliance on God in prayer that I'm talking about is easy to talk about. It's difficult to do. I get that. In the weekly, daily stresses of parenting, your child is struggling to make friends, struggling in school, walking away from the Lord. It's difficult to not be anxious. When you don't get into that college you've wanted to go to for years, or you don't get that promotion, or you don't get the job that you desperately need, it's difficult not to be anxious. When you are without work for a lengthy time and you're struggling to make ends meet and you're afraid of being kicked out of your house. When you lose a child to miscarriage. When you lose your spouse or your parent to a hard-fought battle with cancer or other sickness. When you yourself are struggling through mental illness, depression, panic attacks, and it seems like you're going down a deeper and deeper, darker and darker tunnel. In all of these situations, it's difficult to not be anxious. 
The sort of humble, dependent reliance we are examining here takes faith. And how does the Bible explain faith? In Hebrews 11.1, 1, the writer says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's why it's difficult. God's power, God's faithfulness, they're not something you can hold in your hands. They're something you have to trust in, believe in, have faith in. You can't see it here in front of you. You can't hold it in your hands when those cold winds of anxiety and fear are attacking. Hebrews 11 goes on and talks about the Hall of Fame of Faith, as some people describe it, listing all of these amazing people throughout biblical history who have trusted in God and by faith did X, Y, and Z. It talks about Abraham and Sarah. In Hebrews 11, 8 through 11, it says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith, he went out to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has, no found, that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, and even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Wow. But you know, that sounds a lot better than when I read Genesis If you are familiar with the book of Genesis, then you know that Abraham and Sarah had a lot of rocky times, right? God promised them a child. Sarah laughed at God. God promised to protect and provide for them, to give them and their descendants a land. And Abraham lied about Sarah being his wife twice to avoid a difficult situation. But mixed throughout these rocky times, are moments when Abraham and Sarah stumblingly, faultingly believed in God and his promises, relying on him and praying to him in the moments when they just did not know what to do. The result? God saw their faith, and he saved them. God does not ask perfection of us. He asks that we trust him. He asks that like the father who brought his son to Jesus, said, help my unbelief. He asks that we talk to him about our anxieties, our fears, and our doubts. When anxieties and fears come, which they will, they will cause us to wrestle and doubt, but we should stumblingly have faith in God and his promises, just like Abraham and Sarah, just like all of those individuals in the hall of fame of faith. They all have their moments of weaknesses, failure, unbelief. We need to pray that God would help our unbelief, pray to him to answer our requests, and show our dependence and reliance on him. There's a wonderful quote by C. Uh, Spurgeon, which is in the web bulletin, that says, anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, but only empties today of its strength. Listen to that again. Anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, but only empties today of its strength. Our anxieties, our fears, take away the very thing we need to face today. It takes away our dependence, our reliance on God. Anxiety does nothing but rob us of what we desperately need, our faith and trust in the Lord. Implicit in all of this that I'm talking about is that we belong to God. We are God's first and foremost. He is our maker, our savior, our king. We are his creatures and his children. We are entirely dependent on him, and that's true whether you are a Christian or not. Even the Christians have the rain sent upon their crops by the Lord. 
even, or even the non-Christians have their, the rain sent upon, the, upon their crops by the Lord. All of us are dependent on him. And this idea is very countercultural. We don't want to belong to anyone. We don't want to submit to or obey anyone. We don't want to depend on anyone. As those who have been saved by God, we should make an active practice to pray daily for our needs and requests, from the smallest to the biggest, when we are anxious and even when we are not. And as we pray, we should be thanking God for how he answers How often do you pray for something and then you just completely forget to thank God for it? The Bible calls us to pray with thanksgiving. And if I dig into it a little deeper, I would suggest that the Bible calls us to pray with thanksgiving even before the answer is given, the response is given. We're to pray with thanksgiving, anticipating that God, who is our Lord and heavenly Father and loves us, will answer in the manner that we need Maybe not in the answer that we want, but in the answer that we need. And so we pray with thanksgiving. And as we do that, we rejoice and we have peace. We should pray and make requests to God in light of his character. Who is our God? In Exodus 34, when Israel had sinned grievously against the Lord by creating a golden idol, The Lord threatened to destroy them, and Moses pleaded with him, God, please don't. And then God revealed himself to Moses, and he said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is our God. This is how he described himself to Moses and to countless other people throughout history. Our God is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps love for thousands, for you, for me. And if that is who our God is, how can we not go to him with all of our needs, our requests, our anxieties, and our fears? And as we do, the peace that he gives will protect our, heart, will protect our hearts and minds from anxiety. In this life, difficulties will arise. We will experience uncertainty or suffering, which will lead to anxiety and fear. Even though you hear this sermon, this week, most likely, we are going to be fearing anxieties and fears. I'm going to be feeling it sometime in this week, I'm sure. This can often steal our joy and our peace. But as those who have God as our Heavenly Father and Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we can rest secure. The Lord is at hand. He is in control. He is on the throne. And he is overwhelmingly for us. He is not against us. He is for us because we have been saved in Jesus Christ. And because he is for us, we can peacefully rejoice, a peace and joy that impacts our relationships and our reliance in the midst of need. We're going to sing a new hymn here called God is for us. The lyrics remind us that though we are in a battle, though we stumble and fall, though hell and death want to get us down, we can sing for joy because our God is for us. The Father's love is a strong and mighty fortress. Let's rest secure in it. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning praising and rejoicing in you. Lord, it's hard in the midst of the fears and anxieties of life. It's hard 
when those things confront us like cold, bitter wind. It's hard to warm ourselves next to your fire. We look at, into the wind instead of to the warm fire of your love. God, help us to rest secure in who you are, what you've done, your character, the fact that you are overwhelmingly, abundantly for us, Lord God. Help us to rest secure in that. And as a result, as we rejoice to turn to one another with gentleness and love, as you have turned to us with gentleness and love, as we rejoice to pray about our needs, our anxieties and fears, to rely on you, and as a result, have the peace that guards our hearts and minds. We desperately pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.